athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. I get it. I get it. I want it. I want it. I own it. I own it. I'm on it. I'm on it. Let's get it. You're locked into the Dopey Show on radio. From the press box to press row, I am your host, Donald Ware. Hope you're continuing to stay safe where you are. I got to tell you, I think George is off the chain a little bit. And uh, just from me to you, especially those either living in Georgia or maybe going through Georgia, just because barbershops, hair salons, uh, nail uh, places, bowling alleys, etc. are open does not mean you have to go to those places that I, I tell you what I mean. <laughs> It's one thing to open, in my opinion, it's one thing to open something like a state park or something like that, maybe even a beach to a certain extent. But to open something, uh, a business of that nature and being in such close quarters, I, I mean, I just I, that that's dangerous. So just because, again, uh, especially, you know, for our listeners on WASU uh, who listen to us in Albany. Doesn't mean you have to go to those places. And if you own a business, does not mean you have to necessarily open that business. We are not in the clear. As a matter of fact, uh, I was uh, looking at a story that said that the projections say that the coronavirus could actually double in the state of Georgia. So please continue to be safe. We got a legendary show for you today here on From the Press Box to Press for a couple of legends in their own right. Going to join us on the program. Antoine Bethes played 14 years in the National Football League, a former sixth round draft pick out of Howard looking for year 15, as a matter of fact. And by the way, Antoine Bethes appeared his first national uh, his first appearance on national radio. Uh, took place this month, 14 years ago, a couple of weeks before the 2006 NFL draft. He joined us then, uh, having just had a, a great career at Howard. As a matter of fact, three-time SBN All-American, three-time SBN All-American. So Antoine, but they're going to join us today here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Also joining us today here on From the Press Box to Press Row, the shortstop, number eight for the Baltimore Orioles, Cal Ripken. Cal Ripken, Baseball Hall of Famer, also going to join us today here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Super excited about that interview. I'm a huge Orioles fan, grew up 
an Orioles fan coming up in Washington. The team, the baseball team in Washington was the Orioles. There were no Nationals at the time. There was no baseball team in Washington at the time I was growing up there. So the team was the Orioles and Cal Ripken going to join us today here on the program. National Football League draft kicked off on Thursday, the first round. And I want to know, how do you feel like your team did? How did your team do in the National Football League draft first round? And even to this point, Joe Burrow goes number one overall to the Bengals. Of course, I'm a huge Redskins fan. Big time pickup. Chase Young of Ohio State is going to be a game changer. I, I know a lot was made. Maybe the Redskins may trade the pick. Uh, maybe they may take to a... No way. You got a hometown kid that is that dominant, and you have a defensive-minded coach in Ron Rivera. It's no question the Redskins were going to make that pick. Big-time move by the Redskins. I am super excited. How did your team do in the first round of the NFL Draft? Hit me up via Twitter at BoxToRow, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W, or on Facebook, B-O-X, the number two R-O-W. You can also hit me on my personal Twitter account, at dware one follow me while you're there also on my personal instagram account at where donald cowboys fans how are you feeling cd lamb the wide receiver from oklahoma was the cowboys first round pick at number 17 how about the dolphins um i thought the dolphins did a fairly decent job obviously taking Tua tunga vailoa that was a big time pick uh number five overall and then taking the tackle Austin Jackson out of USC. You got to have some protection for Tunga Vailoa. That was a good move. But also, the uh, Dolphins had another pick, the 30th overall pick. They went for a cornerback. Uh, how do you feel about that, Dolphins fans? Seems like the Dolphins may need some help at wide receiver. Um, Devontae Parker had a very good year, uh, but seems like to me, and, and, and of course, and I'm just talking first round, you know, there were still some receivers in the first round that could have gone, but I mean, three first round picks is hard to go wrong if you're the Dolphins. Thank you to all the wonderful affiliates around the country that carry from the press box to press row. Of course, if we look at the draft, uh, to those that listen to us in Tennessee, uh, the Titans obviously having a first round pick and uh, the Titans obviously in the first round going with a tackle. Isaiah Wilson, those that listen to us in Nashville on WFSK, those that listen to us in Memphis on WKRA. Unfortunately, the Steelers didn't have a first round pick, but shout out to all those that listen to us on WGBN in Pittsburgh. Uh, Tampa Bay went with a tackle Tristan Wirfs. Out of Iowa, those that listen to us on WURK, the Panthers had the number seven overall pick, selected Derek Brown out of Auburn, the defensive tackle. Too many stations in in the Carolinas to name in both North and South Carolina. I'll shout out a couple uh, here in Raleigh Buzz uh, Sports Radio, uh, also in South Carolina. How about WVCD uh, out of Denmark, Bamberg, Orangeburg? 
Those that listen to us on Sirius XM channels 141 and 142 and those that listen to us around the world at BoxToRow.com. I'm up against a break up next here on From the Press Box to Press Row. We're going to be joined by 14-year National Football League veteran Antoine Bethay. Dish TV is better than cable TV. Here's why. Dish has the nation's lowest TV price, along with an award-winning DVR that can skip commercials, record eight shows at once, and get access to thousands of movies at your fingertips. Cable simply can't even compare. So the smart choice is to cut the cable and get Dish. Plus, you get all these great TV features, free HD DVR upgrade, free installation, and free movie channels. Say goodbye to cable and get more with Dish TV. Call 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. As an added bonus, you can switch to Dish now and receive a $50 Visa gift card. So call now and get Dish TV. 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. That's 800-579-0107. Limited time offer, 24-month commitment, and credit qualification required. Cancellation fee, monthly equipment fees, and other restrictions apply. Promotion can change at any time. You're listening to From the Press Box to Press Row. Brady sends Richie Caldwell in motion from right to left across the formation. Takes the snap, rolls to the right side, being chased by Josh Thomas, gets away from him. Here's one out deep down the sideline. It is intercepted by the Colts in the end zone. Antoine Bethea is going to bring it out. He's at the 10. He's at the 15, looking for a block. Gets to the 20. After the 25, cuts back inside, gets to the 30, and falls down at the 31. Let's continue here on From the Press Box to Press Row. The National Football League draft currently taking place. And on the line, we're joined by a gentleman. As a matter of fact, this young man, and he's still a young man, even though it's 14 years ago that he appeared on this show two weeks prior to the NFL draft in 2006, formerly of Howard, uh, and as a matter of fact, was a sixth-round draft pick uh, by the Indianapolis Colts that year. Uh, in his career so far, he's played in 209 games and started 200 of those. Also a Super Bowl winner. No stranger to the program. He's Antoine Bethea. He joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Antoine, what's good, man? Welcome back to the program. Man, what's going on, man? I appreciate you having me as always. Absolutely, and I appreciate you. You always do this uh, with this man, and I appreciate that. How are you and your family doing right now amidst this COVID-19 pandemic? Man, you know, we're doing good, man. we just um, taking it one day at a time. I think as everybody is and, you know, just trying to find ways to keep us productive. Um, definitely the kids, they definitely got us running around, you know. So, again, you know, I think the best thing, uh, we're, we're healthy. Uh, my families are healthy. So, you know, again, we're just taking it one day at a time. Man, I mean, last year, so, I mean, in essence, you, you've, I mean, and I think that's a tremendous stat when you talk about a guy that's played in 209 games, started 200 of those games, pretty much an Ironman, maybe with the exception of, of one year you were injured. But even with the Giants last year, 16 games, 16 starts, currently a free agent. I mean, you're still looking to play some football in 2020, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Definitely um, looking to play, uh, play another year. Um, obviously, you know, with the um, – I know how it goes for me going into year 15 um, – I'm pretty sure, you know, after the draft and, you know, um, if, if nothing happens right after the draft, you know, up 
throughout the summer and then going into training camp. You know, I'll probably be the time where, you know, I'll hopefully get on with the team. But, yeah, man, I, I still feel as though I have um, some more ball um, left in me, man. And, you know, just want to go into a, a right situation, the right fit for myself and obviously for the team. So, you know, I'm just I'm just here working out, staying, staying ready so I won't have to get ready. But uh, I think it'll happen this year. Yeah, I mean, how do you how, explain? Because, I mean, again, 14 years in the league looking for number 15. A lot of guys don't last that long. I mean, you look at the average uh, time in the, in the National Football League. I mean, it's very small, and you have certainly beat those odds from a small school. Uh, no doubt about that. How are you able to do it, man? Talk about how you're able to keep in shape and get out there year in and year out playing 16 games pretty much every season and starting all 16 of those games. Man, I, like I, people ask me that all the time, and you know, honestly, you know, um, you know, have to you know thank the man above for for, but giving me the ability to be able to play this long, um, and really not have that many um, serious injuries. Um, I would say it's a little bit of luck in there as well. But then again, you know, I I take care of myself. You know, during this time, during the off season, this is like one of the most important times to really get your body in shape. Even though we don't play until September. You know, um, I think, um, you know, obviously getting rest, eating eating right, you know, the the things that you put in your body, you know, all those things um, play in as far as, you know, um, being able to go out there and do what you do um, for 16 games and be able to do it year in, year out. You know, the intro we played coming back in from commercial break, I'm not sure if you were able to hear it, but it was your first career interception you remember your first career interception no yeah, yeah i do um i would say regular season it was against um it was against new england in Foxborough <laughs> against, uh, against the patriots of course you're not going to forget when you intercept tom brady but the thing about it antoine as you know you've done it three times in your career i don't know a lot of people that can say they've intercepted tom brady three times w- what is it man why, why did you have so much success against tom brady um i, I I don't know, man. You know, um, as as the the guys and coaches always say, man, when you know, when you're in the right position, when the ball um, comes your way, make that play. You know, I just feel as though I think um, I can say two. I can remember two off the top of my head. You know, just you know, plays that he was trying to get the ball deep down the field. Me playing that post safety was able to get up and um and, and make a play. So um, it's obviously obviously um a good feeling to be able to say you know you picked off one of the greatest if not the greatest quarterback to play the game three times but i mean we we had some great battles um especially when i was in indy but even you know um last year when i was in new york and you know a couple times um when i was in 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 san francisco where we went up went up against tom and the patriots man but um, some definitely some good battles man and i think he'll do some good things out there in Tampa this uh this coming year Antoine Bethea in 2019 finished his 14th season in the National Football League, formerly a six-round draft pick out of Howard back in the 2006 NFL Draft by the Colts. Joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. You know, you were one of those, man, that really stood, knelt with Colin Kaepernick. I know a little bit more recently there, whatever happened, a debacle with the whole deal with him trying out for the teams and all of that, man. Your thoughts, did you think that this would ultimately play out as long as it has? I, you know, I don't think anybody kind of knew what was going to happen. You know, obviously when he uh, first took the stance that he took, I think everybody um, understood what his stance was. And I think a lot of people 
um, rally behind him, you know, uh, myself included. Um, as far as I think it was a lot of a lot of stuff that's, that was going on in the background that maybe we, we, we don't understand what was going on. Um, as far as, you know, um, you know, himself and Eric Reed, um, you know, as far as the collusion um, with the NFL, you know, it was just a lot of things going on. But, um, again, you know, you can still see him, uh, Colin, still going out there doing a lot of stuff um, um, for the African-American community, for the community in general. So he's still out there doing some good things. Eric Reed still, um, you know, bringing a lot of attention to some things as well. So uh, two good guys, man, two good guys doing a lot of good stuff um, in the community. And you can you can sort of relate to the like like you're from Newport. And this is a rough area, you know, Newport. And I mean, you can sort of relate to a lot of the things that Colin Kaepernick was trying to do, which is maybe one of the reasons that you knelt with him. Oh, for sure. I mean, that was that was it. You know, um, you know, for some people who grew up in in neighborhoods that necessarily didn't see it or even happened to them, and that was one of the reasons why. Um, like I said, I stood behind him because I have friends that had to go through some of those things. I, I've actually gone through some of those things and witnessed, uh, witnessed it firsthand. So, of course, um, as a young black man um, in America and going through those things, that's why a lot of guys and a lot of people in the community be still with him. Um, and even if you didn't go through um, or actually have those things happen to you, if you were just a, a knowledgeable human being and just knowing um, what type of things are going on out here and not being naive, I think um, you would probably be one of them people that would be um, standing behind what, 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 what Cap's whole purpose was. Antoine Bethay joins us here on the program. Tough week, or last week, I should say, tough week uh, for HBCU football, the loss of, of uh, Pro Football Hall of Famer Willie Davis. Uh, and then ultimately Tavares Jackson, who you were at the NFL Combine uh, with, as I mentioned, um, you know, when you were on that show uh, back in 2006 on this show prior to the NFL draft, he was on that show as well. Your your thoughts and your memories of uh, of of of, of course, Tavares Jackson. Now, you played against him uh, not only in the National Football League, but also in college as well. Yeah, man, um, that, that's definitely a tragic and, and, and tough loss. You know, prayers go out um, to his family. But um, I remember the first time um, playing against him was uh, my junior year. Um, I was at Howard. He was at Alabama State. We played in um, the Motor City Classic in Detroit, Michigan. Um, and, you know, he was just, you could tell he was just one of those one of those type of guys that could that could really play ball. And, again, getting ready for the, um, getting ready for the, getting ready for the draft. You know, it was kind of, you know, you know, we was kind of at the top. You know, HBCUs, um, guys coming out looking to make that, looking to make their um, their presence felt in the in National Football League. So yeah, it was um, it was definitely a tough loss to hear how he passed. Couple of more thoughts with Antoine Bethay. You can follow him on Twitter at a Bethay one. The book. Let, let's talk about that. It came out a couple of years ago. I believe I, I can't remember. We talked with you about it. I think we did, as a matter of fact. But you know, talk about the book. What, like, you see more of, of a. It, it's interesting. You have have been a guy and have, have been able to really cover you that. Um, you you know you like to do uh, or you I don't I don't know if you like to, but you do these interviews and you're very good at them. But you seem more of a reserved guy. So what led you to, in fact, write this book? Yeah, I am kind of more of a reserved guy. You know, um, I like to stay within my comfort zone um, most of the time. You know, I definitely will step out of it um, when I need to. But as far as the book, man, you know, I would 
I would go around, um, especially in my hometown, Newport News, I would go to different, you know, high schools and just different camps and speak to kids and speak you know, speak to them while their parents are there and just kind of tell my story, not my whole story, but just bits and pieces of um, how we we're relatable, um, coming from the same neighborhood, coming through the same struggles, uh, whatever the case may be. And, you know, a lot of times the parents would be like, look, you should, you should tell your story more, you know, instead of being a five-star athlete going to like a, a Virginia Tech or, or Miami on a full-ride scholarship. Um, yeah, you do have those, but then you have a lot of um, student athletes like myself when I was coming out of high school where I wasn't really highly recruited. You know, still, you know, good grades, but, you know, small in, in stature, but, you know, still had a dream of, of going to college and play ball. So, you know, they just you know, kind of tell, was telling me to tell my story. No question. What do you say to the young guys um, that are that are coming in the, the NFL draft, of course, currently taking place? What do you you know, what kind of advice would you give to uh, sort of a young guy that's coming in looking to hear their name called? Because you were in this same situation 14 years ago. Yeah, I say, I say the biggest thing is con- control what you can control. You know, that's you staying out of trouble. That's you going out there and putting the work in, you studying film, you eating right, and things of that nature. Like, if you can control that, um, you can't worry about, you know, what team is going to pick you, um, you know, all that other stuff. Control what you can control, and when you get your opportunity, make the best of it. And then also, uh, what does Howard mean to you? Obviously, you had a, a lot of success. Um, and I remember now, uh, Ron Bartell was one of those guys that, you know, sort of helped to prepare you a little bit for this process. But w- what does Howard University mean to you? Man, Howard, man, it means a lot to me, man. You know, um, leaving home and going there um, and, and, and becoming, a, becoming a young man. You know, um, even the coaches, Coach Petty, Ron Bowen, um, Coach Gilmore, Howard Gilmore, man, you know, those guys gave me the tools to to, to, to hype my game and to, to get ready to go to the league and then you know going to Howard and just learning about um African Americans in general you know our culture um the legacy that people before us has built um being able to walk on that campus is you know knowing that you know people before me the type of people that's walked on this campus man and you know meet some lifelong friends it was just it means a lot to me man and you know meet my wife there as well so Howard University the Mecca man will always have a special place in my heart Follow him on Twitter at abathea 41 And uh, when, where can we uh, check out the book? Where can we purchase the book? You can go to my website. It's uh, www.antoinebathea.com. And also you can go on Amazon. It's on Amazon as well. Um, better yourself inside the mind of the ultimate underdog. Looking at year number 15 in the National Football League, former six-round draft pick out of Howard University, a Super Bowl winner, three-time Pro Bowler, he is Antoine, but they joins us here. I'm from the press box to press row. Antoine, appreciate the time, man. Uh, continue, and, and you guys continue to stay safe and continued success. We look forward, actually, to seeing you in 2020. Nah, man, I appreciate that, man. You do the same. We'll do, Antoine. Always great to catch up with Antoine, but they up next here on from the press box to press row, Cal Ripken. Track down the names making news in sports from the press box to press row. It's Donald Ware from the press box to press row. Let's continue here on from the press box to press row. Got a a, a, a special guest on the line uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, 19 Major League Baseball All-Star games played 
21 seasons with the Baltimore Orioles. 3,184 hits, 431 home runs. And I'll tell you what, his life after baseball, probably more impressive than his life during baseball, also a baseball Hall of, Hall of Famer. He is the one and only Cal Ripken Jr. Joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Cal, welcome to the program. You know, uh, Jose Mesa used to call me Cal Ripken Sr. because I used to make fun of his age, like he didn't have a birth certificate when he came over. (laughs) So he used to always say, yeah, that's all right, you're Cal Ripken Sr. So I I take that as a compliment. (laughs) No, and and we're going to talk about a lot of different things. Your dad was extremely great, and I'm just so, I'm really impressed with the fact that you were able to play 21 seasons with one team, of course, while he was also a coach. We'll talk more about that. I grew up a huge Orioles fan. But now, so more recently, this is your first time on social media more recently, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, social media was a little ahead of me, and I always uh, I was curious about it. I, I uh, appreciated the way that people were able to connect. Some players could do it better than others. Um, and I always thought that you had to be a little bit more extroverted, um, and I'm an introvert uh, and kind of like my privacy away from the ballpark. Um, so um, I never really jumped in. But when the opportunity came to, uh, during this crisis for us to switch our foundation focus to uh, to uh, helping Feed America um, and partnering with Feeding America, I thought it was a great opportunity to reach out and try to use the power of social media. So it was a good excuse to get on, which has been hugely successful. But i got to tell you, I've enjoyed – um, the connection and and uh, and communicating and and I'm learning the uh, the platform and the forum and uh, some of the lingo. Like uh, my handle is at Cal Ripken Jr., which uh, I'm glad that I know that I can say that now. But uh, you know, putting my dog up on a couple of tricks, uh, uh, he seems to be a popular uh, one. But it is truly a way to connect uh, to many people instantly. And I used to always enjoy the connection that the autograph gave me uh, in spring training and during the regular season. But this is a whole new opportunity, and I'm and I'm really enjoying doing it. Yeah, no question about that. So you're just on Twitter now. Is see Instagram and, and certainly Snapchat. Uh, Snapchat is like for really young people. I'm of a certain age as well, so I'm not a Snapchat person. But Instagram is one of those, and Facebook. Are, are you on anything other than Twitter? Well, you know, um, one step at a time. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I know about myself is that uh, when some people say they can multitask or do uh, multiple platforms, to me, uh, uh, I have to focus on uh, one thing at a time. And so uh, I'm enjoying the, uh, the opportunity to, uh, uh, to share videos and to, uh, um, and to deliver the message and really kind of understand how it all works. So, so this is uh, – I'm, I'm more than willing to take it a little slow. Yeah. The one and only Cal Ripken joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row Strikeout Hunger Campaign. He's partnered with Feed American. For more information on that, and we'll talk more about that, you can log on to RipkinFoundation.org backslash donate backslash strikeout hunger. So let me start here. I should have started here, but how are you and your family doing during this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I mean, uh, we're all doing the right thing, and we're uh, we're we're hunkering down and uh, practicing social distancing. And uh, when we need to go out for groceries and those sorts of things, we do it. And then we try to do it very organized and efficiently. Um, It's a challenge for uh, everyone. No one's ever gone through anything like this. Um, You know, sometimes I try to equate it to, uh, you know, uh, the, the strike of 1994 where we were just sitting at home as baseball players and not having a chance to go do what we do. 
Um, but I don't think you can even compare it to that. This is, uh, this is different. This is, uh, I think I tend to look at it as it's temporary, even though this temporary period, the unknown has, uh, has, has stretched out. Um, still thinking that it will go back to normal and this is just a temporary thing. Um, keeps you focused on the day to day. It's, uh, it's a little bit like the streak in a sense where you're playing every single day. You can't worry about next week or the week after or even tomorrow. You have to worry about today, and I think that's how uh, we've approached it here in this household where uh, we just try to meet the challenges of the day, and then uh, when we get to tomorrow, do the same. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned 1994 because, of course, in 1995, you, along with Tony Gwynn, helped to bring baseball back. And then uh, September 6, 1995, you break the streak of Lou Gehrig's uh, 2,130 straight games by playing 2,131. Talk about that. I mean, that was huge, and I was watching it on TV. I mean, it was just like a surreal moment. Yeah, the uh, to understand uh, how it all happened, uh, really context is uh, necessary. And the '94 season uh, stopped about I think August 12th, if I remember correctly. We uh, we went out on strike. Then uh, there was no uh, negotiations really subsequently, and nothing happened. Then uh, the World Series was canceled. The rest of the season was canceled that year, including the World Series. And then the owners locked us out of spring training for the first few weeks of '95. Uh, so when the, the business side finally cleared cleared up and we all came back to uh, spring training, we had a short period of time to get ready, like three weeks, um, which was plenty of time for a regular player. Uh, the pitchers had to be stretched out a little bit um, quicker. But I remember uh, when the first day I came into spring training is that uh, there was a lot of media interest in this thing called the streak. And I didn't anticipate that at first. You know, I uh, – if things were to go uh, as, as uh, they had in the past, then September 6th would be the uh, record-breaking uh, um, time. But just like any other season, I just wanted to focus on what I was doing now, try to get better, try to contribute to, uh, to the team each and every day. And so, But the media uh, really started to show interest, and they were anticipating this, uh, this moment. Almost for the first time, it felt like there was pressure for me to do it. And I never really looked at it that way before. So... Uh, when we started to go through, the fans were mad, um, and rightfully so. The business side got in the way of them enjoying uh, the sport. And I think all the players felt bad that we took that away from them for a while. And so I think we were all reaching out uh, in ways um, through the autograph or through uh, just being around people. And I know that was on my mind. But then the, uh, the streak seemed to be something that people – um, really, were looking if they're if they're looking for something good and a connection to the past of Oriole or of, uh, of baseball, Major League Baseball. Then the streak was that thing, and I think people, uh, you know, looked at it uh, compared to Lou Gehrig in a time when uh, baseball was a sport, you know, not a form of entertainment necessarily or a big form of entertainment. The athletes weren't entertainers; they were sportsmen, and I think that there was a, a gathering momentum for that feeling. And I think a lot of people could relate to what the streak represented, showing up every day, the importance of showing up every day. I know that was wonderful for me to hear everyone's stories about their own streaks, which uh, surprised me. But as the season went on, this anticipation uh, tended to grow. And uh, I don't know whether uh, I could be credited. I mean, the streak itself could be credited for uh, uh, saving baseball or putting baseball back on track again. But I do know a heck of a lot of people cared about it, and they cared about the principle or the value of showing up every day. And it, it, uh, it ended up with a wonderful celebration that nobody could choreograph. 
Um, uh, I know the Orioles did a nice job with the batters on the warehouse, but nobody could have uh, thought of take a lap around the ballpark and have it unfold the way it did for 22 minutes. So when I think about it, there was so many things that happened uh, during that course of the season um, that ended in the uh, in the uh, the record-breaking night that people really uh, held on to. But I feel really good that we played a role in uh, in helping bring baseball back and bring the fans back to the uh, um, uh, to the connection with the, with the players. And an amazing, uh, and even more amazing, you played another 501 straight games. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the fact that you didn't really think about the streak in that fashion. So was there ever uh, a point that you can remember where the streak may have been in jeopardy? Um, you know, the fallacy of the whole thing is when people say, and, they, and there were people that wrote about it, that I was obsessed with the streak and the streak was all I cared about and it's a, uh, it was almost as if it was a lifelong dream. I, mean, I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to be the best baseball player I could be. Uh, I wanted to have more hits than Pete Rose or hit more home runs than Hank Aaron. Some of the things that you look at that uh, are monumental uh, achievements. So um, your your individual accomplishments would would grow, but it never was the fact that I'm going to uh, I'm going to separate myself from everybody else and go after Lou Gehrig's record. Um, everyday player meant meant something. And it meant that you played every day. And there was an honor in uh, being there for your team every single day, especially if you were in a position uh, hitting third in the lineup or playing short or Eddie Murray hitting fourth in the lineup and playing first with us. It was an honor. Now, today, the definition of an everyday player has changed a little bit. And uh, so maybe they're expecting 140 games out or 145 games that they can get the most out of those those players. But in, in when I came up, you were really a thought uh, to be an everyday player and that you were you were supposed to go out there and meet the challenges every day. And if that manager put you in the lineup, it wasn't an option. You played. And uh, the managers really created the streak. Yeah. No, no question about it. And, of course, help Cal Ripken to strike out hunger. Visit ripkenfoundation.org backslash donate backslash strikeout hunger and we're going to talk a little bit more about that what is it's interesting like n- not many people get to in in, in of course al kalon passed away uh, a couple of weeks ago but it's not a lot uh, of of situations where someone gets to play their entire career for their home state organization at the highest level so what did that mean to you and of course having grown up uh, with your father, Cal Ripken Sr., being a part of the Orioles organization? Well, I mean, there's there's a couple of parts about the, the dream of being a big league player. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up around the Orioles. My dad was, uh, as you said, was with the Oriole organization. But it was really easy in the Baltimore area to be an Oriole fan. Uh, they were great. They were good. They were in the World Series virtually every year. Um, from the earliest part of my childhood, I remember going to a World Series game in 66, seeing Frank Robinson in a home run, and they swept the Dodgers that year. Um, then in 69, 70, 71, they're in the uh, World Series. Now they won one of them. And my hero, Brooks Robinson, dominated the 70 World Series. So it was easy to uh, root for the Orioles. And, and so part of the dream was I want to be a baseball player, but I want to be an Oriole. You know, I'm from this area. I want to uh, do that now. It's really outside of your control. Uh, the draft comes comes around, and if you're good enough to be drafted, um, you can't control where you go in the draft. But 
I, I just so happened that I was drafted in the second round. We had four second round picks that year, I believe. And the Orioles took me as one of the uh, four second round picks, which gave me an opportunity uh, to start my dream uh, in an Oriole uniform uh, in the minor leagues. And once you get uh, through the system and you get to the big leagues, then you feel like you've made it. But then uh, to be able to play your whole career, uh, even in uncertain times, you know, there was many rebuilding processes in that time. We were really great early. We won the World Series early in my career. But we went through some ups and downs. And uh, I always felt that uh, it was important that uh, that I, I was young enough to get through a rebuilding process the first time. But it was part of my identity, and it's part of who I wanted to be. I wanted to write the Orioles and help the Orioles get back to the playoffs. And uh, I'm glad that uh, things worked out that way because many times when you go through rebuilding, they get rid of the whole team, and then they start from scratch, um, maybe similar to what's happening with the Orioles now. And so I was really fortunate to uh, to withstand those sort of movements and still be able to, to, to play as an Oriole the whole time, my whole career. Yeah, I tell you what, as an Orioles fan, I tell you, I remember '83. I was I was old enough to remember that. Uh, boy, that '88 season was rough, 0 and 21. But then the next season came back, finished second, almost actually won uh, the division, and then of course helping to lead the Orioles back in the mid '90s was awesome. The '83 season. What do you remember most about that? The World Series, and of course, you won League MVP. Um, well, I was going to say the uh, when you started to mention '89, uh, in my mind, real quickly, the '82 season, which was my rookie year, and the '89 season um, was a, were both really, really exciting years. Um, the '82 season, we went to the last day of the season, and we were tied with the Milwaukee Brewers. We had that final uh, series at uh, at home where we needed to win. Uh, we were three back with four to play, and they were all against the Brewers, and we beat them the first three games. And then we had ultimately lost. Robin Yount uh, hit two home runs off of Jim Palmer, and he was the MVP of that league. But we were that close to making the uh, uh, playoffs, uh, winning the, the – it was just one game. And we all looked around at each other and thought, you know, we could have made that one game up in any time. We blew this lead here. We did that. Um, we got off to a slow start. So we all looked at uh, each other, and then we went into spring training. It was almost on autopilot that we were all, uh, you know, were, were, there was a sense of urgency to getting off to a good start. And we walked away with the pennant that year. We, we might have won it uh, uh, with a huge, you know, I'm thinking it might have been 15 to 17 games we were we finished in first place. And then we went on to beat the White Sox and we went on to beat the Phillies in the World Series. But I do believe the experience in 82 with almost identical uh, group of guys uh, it shaped us and it uh, motivated us to really get off to a good start and, and win the whole thing next year. Now, it, what a way to start my first two years of my career. A rookie of the year, we went to the last day of the season, sure we win the World Series. Um, and uh, I'm thinking we're going to do this, uh, you know, time and time again. But then we fell into uh, into a, a little bit of a rebuilding process. Um, I know we were good in 84, but the Tigers were better. They got off to a 35-5 start. We were pretty good in 85. Then we started going into the free agent market in 86. We're in that around that time. Um, and then we went through a rebuilding process, which was really painful. But coming out of that rebuilding process after we lost 21 games in 88, uh, the Orioles fired my dad during that time. Very difficult time. But 89 um, was sort of an unexpected year where we had a lot of uh, young, energetic guys, a lot of enthusiasm. They started playing great defense. They started developing as players. I was able to uh, to sit in the middle of that lineup and contribute, and we found ourselves playing the 
Toronto Blue Jays in the final weekend of the season for the pennant. So we needed to win two out of three to tie. Um, and we were winning the first game, and we had Greg Olson came in to close the game out. Um, and uh, um, we, they ended up coming back and beating us, uh, I believe, on a wild pitch. And the second game, we had them beat again, and the same thing happened. They came and snatched it uh, from us in the last inning. Um, Greg Olson was great as a, uh, as a closer, and he was the reason we got to that point. Um, tried to throw a couple of curveballs uh, that would break too big, and they, they were in the dirt. And, uh, and we ended up losing uh, both those games, and we lost to Pennant. But that was one of the most gratifying and the, the most exciting seasons because the expectations were so low. No question about it. Hold the line for me one second. We're joined by the one and only Cal Ripken here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Let's step aside, take a break, come back. We'll talk more with Cal Ripken. Bye. It's Donald Ware from the press box to press row. Continuing the conversation with Cal Ripken here on from the press box to press row. You can help him strike out hunger, strike out hunger campaigns, partner with Feed America and others. More information can be found at ripkinfoundation.org backslash donate backslash strike out hunger. Interestingly enough, Cal, I mean, you're, you're doing this now, right? But you've always given back to the community. Let's talk about that and, and what has led you to, in fact, do so throughout the course of your career. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the influence of my parents, uh, they were always uh, encouraging uh, uh, me to be part of the community. Um, and then my mom even uh, set the standard really high. She said, just think, you know, you go on to be a baseball player, you, you end up making a lot of money. Just think of all the people that you can help with that platform. And so I put that in the back of my mind, and uh, when I signed my first longer-term contract, um, then I felt like, uh, and I had good, I had good role models too. Eddie Murray uh, had given five hundred thousand dollars to the to the city for a for a park in his mom's name, you know, really helping kids out. And he and Ken Singleton, Al Bumbry, I mean, a lot of people that lived in other areas were from California. They came in, uh, became Orioles, and made their home here. And so I felt that, uh, you know, I wanted to do something. And so I said yes to most everything, um, and all the causes were good. But it really wasn't until my dad died toward the end of my career that uh, we created a foundation in his name where we could really focus our attention on what we thought was important to dad. And dad's legacy was helping kids, and he used baseball to help get in front of kids, sometimes troubled kids, um, that uh, he could talk to them through sport, through baseball, and give them an opportunity to uh, to stay away from, you know, a bad element and give them a di- different direction in their lives. So we started that foundation, and we've we've built a national foundation. Um, it's unbelievable the uh, the 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 growth of our foundation. Um, I would have been happy just with a regional one, you know, helping a few kids at a time in, in Dad's spirit. But uh, we were able to get a great executive director in Steve Salem. He brought along a, he built a great board. We have a board of a 35 to 40 people now, influential people all over the country. And we built an infrastructure where we help kids all across the country. We built fields, we built programs, and we're really making a difference with a, with a ton of kids. And when this happened, uh, you know, our foundation started thinking, how can we help now? So we shifted our focus to saying, okay, the, the most important need now is food. Um, security and there's food insecurity all over the place in normal times in some of these areas that uh, um, they rely on the boys and girls clubs or schools to uh, for their meals and all of a sudden that wasn't happening anymore 
So uh, we decided that we're going to put 100 grand up, and then our partners, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, Kevin Harvick Foundation, Group 1001, Niagara Cares, put up a $250,000 matching um, pledge, and uh, all of a sudden we were off to the races. And but I think the biggest value so far, and this is the reason I went on social media, is when you make a case. You know, obviously partnering with Feeding America because they, they, they know how to distribute food. We don't know how to do that. But we have the right partner. But the biggest thing that they told me was for every $1 donated, it means 10 meals distributed. So if you think of the value of your dollar and if you give $10, you're, you're affecting 100 meals. And so collectively, and we've raised a lot of money in our foundation, sometimes $1 at a time. Uh, through many different people, but it gives people out there with a lot of not a lot of means um, and and not really time in which they can go do it, but they can make a difference by uh, by making a small donation, and that that was really the appeal of social media. And I don't know what the number is now, but we've raised we've we've raised a lot of money, and we're helping a lot of a lot of families and kids. Absolutely, strike out hunger campaign. And for more information, ripkinfoundation.org backslash donate backslash strikeout hunger. A couple of more thoughts with Cal Ripkin Jr. who joins us here on the program. So the Ripkin experience, like we play travel ball. My son plays travel ball. We were in Myrtle Beach uh, Memorial Day weekend uh, last year. Beautiful facility. Talk about that. Like your name in Little League is as big now as it was when you played in Major League Baseball. Well, I think most of the people uh – Say that, yeah, that's uh, uh, that's uh, that's Cal Ripken the league, <laughs> or Cal Cal Ripken experience. They don't really equate because um, heck, I've been out of my last year was '01, so it's it's running up on 20 years being out of the game. And if you have a 10 year old kid or 11 year old kid, they don't have much much to think about. I mean, thank goodness for the internet where they can Google me if they want, or their parents <laughs> can talk about me a little bit. But they associate uh, the experience they have themselves with the name. And we're really proud to be able to use that name to give kids an opportunity to experience baseball. You know, we, we when I say we, Billy and I both feel that uh, we're not necessarily making big league players uh, by giving them the opportunity because only the very few, at such a small percentage, can go on and, and have a uh, career in baseball. But all the things we experience in baseball, we can try to have the kids experience uh, down at a lower level, which is what the Ripken experience is all about. We try to give them big league amenities, different shaped fields. We try to give them a sense of what it's like to play in Fenway Park. Some of the design things that we've done with ballparks, you know, are some of the things that we've experienced in baseball that we think are pretty cool. Now, you can't build uh, big league replicas all over the place because it costs tons of money, but you can bring thematic parts of the uh, fields and dimensions and uh, quality of fields and types of fields in where you can give them an experience. And we're really proud of that. We've built uh, uh, some good models. Aberdeen uh, is more of a regional model, weekend model. Myrtle Beach is a week-long vacation destination. Pigeon Forge can be a hybrid of both, but mostly a vacation destination. And so we're looking to duplicate those, uh, those successes and those complexes around. We just signed a deal with Disney. Uh, so we're doing the baseball softball programming down at the wide world of sports of Disney. So we brought the Ripken experience down there, which we're just getting started on. So um, we're making a difference. We're getting to more kids, and we like to duplicate these models in other parts of the country. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned Billy. and What was it like playing with him and your father at the same time? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, many times when we're talking baseball, just sitting around, um, you know, Billy, first of all, is on MLB Network, and if you haven't uh, listened to him, 
he has the gift of gab. He's got uh, good time, good comedic timing uh, at times. He's very comfortable on TV now, but he has a wealth of knowledge that he puts out. And uh, I really enjoy listening to him. And he's a, he's a really good um, uh, analyst in, uh, in the studio right now. I think he's won a couple of Emmys for his work. Um, but when we sit around, you know, some people will say, okay, well, who's the best second baseman you ever played with? And the first guy that comes to mind is my brother, Billy. Now, for, for a lot of reasons, uh, and, and uh, because he's my brother, we think a lot alike, but we were able to execute and turn double plays that were some of the most difficult yep. ones because we knew each other real well. Yep. We knew uh, where is the perfect spot when, uh, when I need to turn it with somebody uh, sliding into me really hard. Where do I have to get it so I can catch it and release it and still complete the play? And so it was fun playing with Billy for those five years as a uh, everyday second baseman. And, uh, you know, we were brothers. We got along really well. But if you looked at who was probably the most talented second baseman, you know, was uh, probably Robbie Alomar. Robbie Alomar could do things um, instinctively, innately, um, that just made me shake my head and go, man, how do you do that? Uh, give you an example. Uh, on a cutoff plate to home, the guys on first base, double down the right field line. It might have been in Camden Yards at the time. The ball rattles around the corner for a minute. Um, you think you have a play at the plate, but also the guy, you might have a play at third. And Robbie catches the ball midstream and lines up to throw the ball to home but then realizes halfway through his motion that the play's really at third. And with, uh, with, with somehow contorting his body and still holding his arm back, he throws a dart to third base, <laughs> and we catch the ball and tag the guy on the third base trying to get into third. And I kept thinking, you know, how in the world did he change his mind right in the middle? So he would do things like that all the time that would just make you stop and think for a second. So. From a talent perspective, and he's a Hall of Fame player, and uh, and I really enjoyed playing with him. But uh, I got to tell you, I really enjoyed playing with Billy uh, in the middle of that diamond because uh, because we thought alike. We uh, we were on the same page almost without words. Yeah, you're right. Some of the great uh, uh, double play uh, that were turned that I've ever seen were were by you too. So do you? You know, Major League Baseball's changed a little bit over the years, especially rules from a rule standpoint. Like, are you okay? The guys can't take you out uh, at at short. Uh, can't take short stops out anymore. Are you are you okay with that? Well, I was a little disappointed, and uh, you know, I understand the thought and the logic of that. Um, but I think that's uh, something that, that could have been uh, um, managed through the, uh, the umpires. You know, when I came into uh, the big leagues, and it's not bragging or anything, but uh, the roll block was still allowed. You'd come running, you didn't even have to slide. You could just start rolling and try, and you could roll past the bag, and there was, there was no real protection for you, and you had to deal with that. Now, there were ways that you could deal with it um, within the sport and all that kind of stuff, but uh, breaking up a double play – um, especially if there was a first and third situation and one out. And if you broke up a double play, you get a run. And sometimes uh, that aggressive base running, you know, it's hard-nosed, it's hard baseball. Um, the uh, I think what all started that was uh, the collision at home plate with uh, Buster Posey. There were times when you had to run into a catcher who was blocking the plate to score a run. And the object is to score a run. But then, then for a while it seemed like people were really taking shots at catchers saying, okay, um, I don't care if I score a run or not. I'm just going to, you know, uh, I want that that 15 seconds of uh, fame by running over a catcher. So it almost seemed like there was a football mentality, whereas, you know, if you could slide in and score a run, that, the idea is to score a run, not to hurt the uh, catcher. So I think baseball uh, really looked at that, and then that, that went over to uh, 
the Chase Utley uh, play at second base during the playoffs with the uh, with the Mets. I remember uh, doing that game, and Chase Utley is a really uh, good hard nosed player. And uh, you know they're trying to play baseball and trying to score that run, and the one run makes a difference. But there was sort of an overreaction in my in my opinion to how to how you do that. So now you've almost taken out any of the uh, ability for someone to break up a double play at second base. Um, and I think I think the game uh, misses that a little bit. Wow! Follow him on Twitter now at Cal Ripken, Ripken Jr. Of course, Strikeout Hunger campaign is in effect now. He's partnered with Feed America and others. For more information, log on to RipkinFoundation.org/backslash/donate/backslash. Strike out hunger. He's the one and only Cal Ripken joining us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Cal, I really appreciate you doing this. Appreciate your time. Continued success in everything you do and you and your family stay safe. Okay. Yeah. I really appreciate you spreading the word. I mean, uh, you know, us, uh, you know, helping out with food is, uh, is really an important thing and, uh, and it helps, uh, you know, every, every time that we're able to mention it and every time we're able to get it out there and reach out to people that, uh, that want to help, um, um, it's it's been wonderful. So thank you for that, and thank you for allowing me to talk a little baseball. Absolutely, appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. All right, man. That was awesome to be able to have a huge Orioles fan. Like grew up huge Orioles fan, Cal Ripken, Eddie Murray, my favorite players, and to be able to interview him is absolutely awesome. Listen, got to get ready to run here on from the press box to press row. Check out our website boxtorow.com. We have. The HBCU NFL Draft Chronicles. We have chronicled South Carolina State's Alex Taylor. We've chronicled Tennessee State's Chris Rowland. And the the person that I think is the sleeper, the sleeper in this draft, Matthew Wilkerson, tight end, defensive end out of Edward Waters College. Yes, you want to hear about him. You want to hear about his story. Got an excellent chance to have uh, some success, not only getting drafted, but some success in the National Football League. Matthew Wilkerson, you can check out his profile on our website at BoxToRow.com. Thank you to Cal Ripken for joining us today here on From the Press Box to Press Row to Antoine Bethay for also joining us today here on From the Press Box to Press Row. For more information on the program, log on to our website, BoxToRow.com, and please continue to stay safe and always remember to support those that support you from the press box to press row is presented by EW communication